Hey, folks. Hello. My name is Ellen Adair. And I am Eric Gildy. And welcome to Take Me Into the Ball Game. Yeah. In an effort to bring the entire Take Me Into the Ball Game project into one feed, we are going to be releasing our old episodes on Pitcher List week by week. Yes. Enjoy for the first time or revisit an old favorite. And so now, this is one of them. <laughs> And welcome to Take Me Into the Ball Game, subtitled Rating Baseball Movies on the 20 to 80 Scouting Scale. Take me into the ball game. Do it. Yeah, he really wants you to take uh, you into the ball game. I need to get into that ball game. Yeah, so my name is Ellen Adair. I'm Eric Gildy. Hi. And we are two actors who decided to watch or rewatch baseball movies given the current lack of baseball due to COVID-19. Gotta get that baseball fix. Gotta get that baseball fix. And then we decided subsequently that we would rate them on a few categories on the 20 to 80 scale used for baseball prospects. So if you're not familiar with that scale, 20 is way bad. 50 is an average productive major leaguer. So that's good, actually, if you can make the major leagues. And 80 is like a Hall of Fame level talent. Yeah. So this week, we are going to be talking about the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motorcades. Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, which is a movie that I hadn't seen before. And I really, if I'm honest, and I, I want to be honest, I don't think I'd ever even really heard of before up until, gosh, what, like a few weeks ago. Yeah, I also, this movie had sort of been off my radar. I had not seen it. And so this is also the point in the podcast for us to make the disclaimer that if you have not seen this film and dislike spoilers, you should stop now and you should rent the movie on Amazon because it is readily available and then come back to us because we are not going to make any effort to not spoil the events of this film when we're we talk about it. We're going to be taking some big swings here in terms of spoilers. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. Maybe some big cuts and maybe... Maybe some misses, but other proviso, of course, we are two white people talking about a movie about the Negro Leagues, and neither of us are like particular experts on the Negro Leagues. Yeah, and it's it's sadly apt that I didn't know about this movie. One hundred percent. Because yes, in a lot of ways, that is the story that we have passed down to us about the Negro Leagues, about all of these forgotten players, about all of these lost statistics about yeah. all of these incredible moments that are kind of lost to history. Quick shout out to Joe Posnanski in his top 100 players of all time piece that he wrote for The Athletic, which is a monumental and great piece of work. All you need to do is read his entry. I believe it's number five for Oscar Charleston to to get a little bit of a sense of just how infuriating it is that we have lost so much about this. 
It's very true. And I have some other things that I'm going to talk about in Joe's Baseball 100 series as well, but we'll get to that anyway, later on. Anyway, on to Bingo Long. So this movie came out in 1976. It was adapted from a novel of the same name by William Brashler by Matthew Robbins and Hal Barwood. These two writers had written a couple of things together. They wrote Sugarland Express that Steven Spielberg directed. And also a number of other things, but notably both had some uh, IMDb credits for additional story or Close Encounters of the Third Kind. This is interesting also because Steven Spielberg was interested in this project. I'm not sure that he wanted to direct it, but I think he wanted to have a hand in its development, whether it was directing or producing. But with the success of a little movie called Jaws, he was basically given carte blanche to do whatever he wanted next, and he chose the kind of more personal Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So the movie ended up being directed very well, I think, by John Batham, who is a guy who had directed a number of projects for TV before, but this was really his big break in terms of feature motion pictures. And he had a career following that that was very impressive and continues to this day. He still directs, he's 80, I think, and still directs mm. TV with some regularity. But a couple of highlights in my nerdy nerdiness in his filmography Eric are- Eric puts the nerdy nerdiness in nerdy nerdiness. It is, well, sometimes just the first one, but he also directed Saturday Night Fever. He directed War Games. He directed Short Circuit. And I think also Dracula, I think the Frank Langella Dracula. So like this guy has done some amazing work and this is a little bit of a starting point for that. That is very fascinating. It's pretty cool, right? I feel like I saw a tweet going around about like if you could only pick three movies directed by the same person to watch for the rest of your life. And I don't know that I would necessarily want to pick three of those movies, but you could do worse oh, than yeah. picking three of those movies. Absolutely. So before we really get into it, just a quick overview of the three stars. Billy Dee Williams plays Bingo Long, who I feel like I had a little bit of a sense of this, but didn't really know the extent of it. He really started as a painter. He got a two-year scholarship for the National Academy of Fine Arts and Design, to study classical painting principles. And I did not know that. He was like nominated for a Guggenheim Fellowship when he was still a teenager and won some prizes. He started acting to pay for paints and canvases. Oh Isn't that crazy? And then so like he acted more and more and started studying with some really amazing people. And then kind of the, the ratio sort of started to change and he acted more and more. This was a few years before he became immortal for playing Lando Calrissian in The Empire Strikes Back. But he had already his big thing that he won an Emmy nomination for that I, I think kind of put him on the map for a lot of people was the film Brian's Song in 1971 with James Caan, where he played a football player, not a baseball player, a football player who is struck with terminal cancer. James Earl Jones plays Leon Carter, Leon, Leon Carter. Carter the catcher, and he, although he is known for association with baseball movies these days, part of what really brought him into stardom, he'd been around for a while, like he was in Dr. Strangelove, he was in The Comedians with Richard Burton before this, 
But I think one of his big, like, star-making performances, kind of funny because, you know, with Billy D. Williams coming to fame a little bit with a non-baseball sports movie and then being in this similar thing with James Earl Jones, he won a Tony Award for The Great White Hope and then an Oscar nomination for the film version of it the next year. This was 69 and 70, which is a really great boxing story. Richard Pryor, who plays... Uh, she's got like three names in this. Charles, Carlos. Yeah, I think his his like given name in the film is supposed to be Charlie Snow, but he goes as Carlos Navarro for a while <laughs> He was really, in a sense, kind of in his prime right here. He'd already been a successful writer for things like Sanford and Sons, Flip Wilson Show. He, he co-wrote Blazing Saddles. He was already acting in things. He was a famous stand-up already. Height of his fame, arguably. He was a host on the first season of Saturday Night Live just the year before the first host of color in the show, and I think the only one in the first season, and had already won an Emmy and two Grammys, and had two other movies out this year, 1976, Silver Streak and Car Wash. So I guess I, I bring all that up to say that this movie was kind of an all-star team of African-American actors in the mid-70s. And the only other thing to say before really getting into it is that it was voted by AFI as one of the top 10 sports films. Good job, AFI. Yeah. So now we're going to get to our first category, grading the different tools that mm -hmm. uh, Bingo Long, Traveling All-Stars, and Motor Kings has. It's such a fun title to say, It's isn't a very it? fun title to say. It's very fun to say the whole thing because I'm from Philadelphia, and in Philadelphia people say the whole thing. Mm. In Boston, I'm sure that they would just short it to, like, Bing. <laughs> anyway, so... Our first category is amount of baseball. What's your score for this, Eric? I am going to go with a 55 because I think that there is some really good baseball in this. Don't get me wrong. There, there's some really fantastic baseball. Good games, good moments, very, very memorable stuff. But there are pretty big chunks in the middle that don't have any baseball. And again, it's kind of like we were talking about with a league of their own last week. Sometimes it feels like there's more baseball than there really is because there are a lot of people like talking about baseball and you're always seeing the team doing stuff together as opposed to Lou Gehrig is with the team and oh, now he's with his family. Now he's with this other part of his life. You're always kind of seeing the team together. So it feels like there's more than it is because you're getting that team dynamic, that team camaraderie but there's not an overwhelming amount of baseball in it. So that's that's why I go 55. Like above average, the baseball that you get is good, but it's not that much above average. I went 55 for basically all of the same reasons. Yeah. Nice. The baseball sequences are not exceptional, but I think it's a still it's a better than average amount of baseball and I think that's mostly because there's no lame romantic subplot or something. Yeah. Most of the scenes are still geared even in that swath of film where there is no actual baseball action. It's all geared towards the players wanting to be able to get back on the ball field. Totally. Excellent. Excellent. So I'm going to move along to our next category Let's because I know that we've got some probably pretty lengthy categories ahead of us. Oh, just you wait, guys. Just you wait. So our next category is baseball accuracy. Mm -hmm. And 50 is the highest score I have given so far in this category. 
but I felt compelled to give this film a 55. Okay. Because there are only a couple of things that I can really point to as being baseball inaccuracies. They're big, and I'm going to get to them. But taking into account the fact that it's a comedy, and I think there's a little bit about the storytelling world that gives license on a couple of things, but I'll get into that more later on. So the film is obviously helped by the fact that it is not depicting a real thing that actually happened. Like, this isn't the bingo-long biopic. Exactly. Depicting specific games that were played. Exactly, because there was no person named Bingo Long. But it takes inspiration from real people and events and weaves them in in a way that I actually really appreciate Mm -hmm. in terms of baseball accuracy. So it's clear that the film takes a lot of inspiration from Satchel Paige and the James Earl Jones character has some sort of Josh Gibson similarities. Which the movie like pretty clearly spells out at the beginning. Yes, but there's also, there's the newsreel at the beginning that names Satchel Paige. That's what I mean, And Josh Gibson. So we're supposed to have them rattling around in our minds, but we're also supposed to know that we're living in a world in which those people exist. So it's not trying to represent Paige and Gibson by another name. Ooh, very Shakespearean. Um, I thought yes. of, I actually weirdly thought about Shakespeare a couple of times in this film just for like some of the setups. And one of the things that you're making me think of now is like a comedy of errors type version of this film oh, yes, where Bingo and, and Satchel and Josh and Leon are bumping into each other and getting people really upset with funny misunderstandings. It would be delightful. I'd watch it. Bingo Long 2 coming soon. <laughs> Um, So there are a few fun similarities between Satchel Paige and Bingo Long that I wanted to mention. Mm -hmm. So in both the first and last baseball sequences that we see, Bingo throws an invite pitch with no fielders, which was something that Satchel would do early in his career when he was playing semi-pro teams. And I think he would mostly do that when his team had the lead, not when he was down the way that Bingo's team is at the end of the game. Again, we told you we'd be spoiling things. Spoiled. Um, But I'm not 100% on that. But they were definitely both showboaters. They're both Paige and Long are sort of catch the ball behind your back kind of guys. Yeah. And it also, because is it the last game where he does it from behind? Yes. Or is it? Yes. Yeah. The other difference with that, obviously, is that is such a high stakes game. And at the beginning when he does it, it's a preseason exhibition game. Yeah. It's so very you different. show that it's like, yeah. Satchel Paige did also have an all-star team, even though it wasn't the same socialist Du Bois-inspired plan. A fancy guy from the Dominican Republic hired Paige to assemble a bunch of his friends for a team in the DR owned by the dictator at the time, who was named Rafael Trujillo. Sure, Trujillo. And that team included Josh Gibson, notably. But they were banned from the Negro Leagues for breaking their contract. So when they got back, they couldn't play for a team. So they started their own barnstorming team, which was at first called Trujillo's All-Stars and then Satchel Paige's All-Stars. And they would play the House of David team, which we see in, we see the Bingo Long All-Stars doing in this film. And this was an actual thing. I've got a lot of notes about that. Okay. Yeah. Well, why don't we get into some of your notes about that? Well... I loved seeing the House of David stuff, but I also watched it with like a little bit of a cocked head being like, I don't know a whole lot about this, but this seems a little not exactly what the House of David 
team was. So for people who don't know, the House of David baseball team was a baseball team of a religious organization based in southwestern Michigan, the Benton area, I think. I believe that the founders sort of claimed that they were some figures from the Book of Revelation that had been foretold, and all of the people in it had grown their hair super long and their beard super long because of a particular passage in Leviticus. And for various reasons of outreach and exercise and all of that, they started playing baseball and the baseball team really caught on. They were very weirdly in parallel to some of the kind of clowning hijink type novelty baseball stuff that happened as well in some of the Negro leagues, especially with the Indianapolis clowns, which I believe is what the novel's inspiration came from for the, for bingo long traveling all-stars and motor Kings. You really have to say it all, don't you? You gotta say it all. And they were known for pepperball of doing these kind of like Harlem Globetrotter kind of like tricks with the ball, bouncing it around, throwing it over your back, catching it, pulling it out of your beard, pulling it out of this, that, and became a, a real attraction, but also were really good ball players. And there were a number of people who played for them at various times. And if they didn't have a beard, they would like put on fake beards. Yeah, you see it in the film. The guy who is pitching for the House of David team in the film is wearing a, like an obviously fake beard. And there would be like fancy, fancy players who would drop in and play with them every now and then. Like Grover Cleveland Alexander played with them. Daffy Dean, Dizzy Dean's brother, played with them. A bunch of others. In the film, they are depicted as like very Jewish. They're like stars of David on their uniforms, which I'm not sure was a thing. And they're wearing like more traditional, like Hasidic type garb, which I sort of thought, gosh, do I just not know? There's a lot of stuff that I look at in this film and I thought, oh, is this just me not knowing about a thing? I think and they were a, a Jewish religious society though, right? They, I don't think they were. Oh, no, okay. I think that was a common mistake. I think that they're, that they had a lot of, you know, a lot of shared Judeo-Christian values, but were kind of their own thing. Something that I read that was excerpted from a book said that there was a producer of the film, Rob Cohen, who was kind of like responsible for adding like the Jewish touch to the House of David stuff. And so that's why the uniforms are a little bit different, the kind of like more traditional garb and also why, because I Googled this. This is how I found this article because I was I saw the vendors in the stands having their going out of business placards on it. And I was like, what? What is that? Is that an inside thing? And apparently that was kind of like a ref, like a, a sort of self-deprecating Jewish joke that Rob Cohen suggested is, you know, like about like Jewish business practices I or something like that. I wondered that same thing when I saw that. I was like, is this a Jewish joke? Are, are we seeing like all of the minorities having to make jokes of themselves in order to play baseball? Yeah, yeah. And so that's most of what I have about it. And We'll get to my score after well, after you talk. Well, I'm also I'm I actually wrote down fifty. I'm tempted to go fifty five, but I wrote down fifty just because there's so much that's accurate about House of David, for example, these like little touches. But then there's enough that isn't. It's for a reason, and yet it it's still not like totally accurate. So the attention to detail is great, and the choice to go against accuracy is totally cool. 
but it still makes it slightly inaccurate. That's fair. That's totally fair. I, I debated between a 50 and a 55, and I think it was just the more that I thought about the kind of, like, satchel page-isms that they decided to put into the movie, not yeah. in terms of accuracy, but just as a kind of homage, that I I thought, you know, I don't know, maybe 55. So, if I may share another couple of those things. Oh my god, please do. Thanks, Eric. So, uh, I remember this from having recently read it in Joe Posnanski's piece about Satchel Paige on the, in the Baseball 100. Um, but apparently when he first, when Paige first tried out for a semi-pro team at age 17, the team manager asked, do you throw that fast consistently? And he said, no, I do it all the time. And that exchange is appropriated for when, in this film, Esquire Joe collides with Leon Carter in a sort of, like, classic, iconic dust cloud. And James Earl Jones says, do you do this constantly? And Stan Smith says, no, sir, I does it all the time. I made a note about that and had no idea that that was actually referencing Satchel Paige. That's amazing. Yeah, it's so delightful. So there's one more sequence that is both a plus and a question mark. So in Joe's piece, he tells the famous, maybe apocryphal story about this time that Paige walked two batters to intentionally hit to Gibson. The thought being that people really wanted to see him pitch to Gibson and he was just giving people what they wanted. Anyway, the way this story relates to this film is that apparently on this occasion, Paige told Gibson exactly what he was going to throw. And so now we're going to go into an Ellen Adair-style breakdown of this moment. Breakdown. Okay, it's the first baseball scene at the beginning of the movie. Bingo and the crowd ask who's going to hit his invite pitch, and Carter gets up, and I love that James Earl Jones is slinging like 12 bats around to warm up. It's such a hero's entrance. It's such a hero's entrance. But this made me wonder, is there not a lineup? Do they not know who's going to be batting first? And if that's the case, do you want to be batting your power hitter first? I mean, I understand maybe batting your catcher first. The Phillies talked about maybe batting JT Romero first, but like he's got some speed on the base pass and he's the most absurdly perfect human being. Anyway, I digress. Okay, so. Okay, okay. I don't know the rules. Maybe there's an invite pitch exception or something. And Gibson isn't actually slated to be the leadoff hitter. So he gets in the box. And then I have thoughts about James Earl Jones' batting stance, which is that it's odd, but in a sort of a plausible way. It reminds me of kind of like a righty Matt Olson or something. He holds the bat like way, way out from his body. And then Billy D. Williams' windup is also okay. It looks kind of old-timey, but in a, in a sort of a plausible way. It doesn't actually look that far off from what his baseball double does in the wide shots. Mm. I believe I read, and I don't know, we, we discussed none of this beforehand, by the way. I don't know if your research also suggested the same thing, that they used players from the Indianapolis Clowns as baseball doubles in this film. Oh, no, I didn't read that. So one of the thoughts about why a lot of the baseball shots are kind of wide is because those players were actually much older than the actors. Interesting. Okay. But when you look at the windup of the player playing Bingo Long in the wides and then Billy D. Long's windup, they actually look pretty similar. So maybe he was just doing a good job trying to match what the actual pitcher was doing. Anyway. One thing quickly about James Earl Jones is that he's been involved in so many baseball projects. And I read an interview in which he was asked this question. He said that he was not a baseball person at all. 
He said that he didn't really play baseball. He wasn't good at it. And I just, I think about this in terms of like his stance. And I wonder if that could have, I mean, he seems like athletic and I believed him as the player, but it made me think of when he said in this interview, quote, in all the baseball movies I've been in, I've realized one thing. It is impossible to hit a spherical baseball with a tubular stick unless you see the ball as you hit it. You can't even hit it by accident unless you see the ball as you hit it. And I could never do that. Wow. <laughs> Acting. Acting. Because he, he's, he's not exceptionally plausible. He's not like Kevin Costner, Robert Redford, mm. Charlie Sheen plausible, but he's not Gary Cooper implausible either. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a very interesting fact. Thanks. Um, so anyway, to return to the Ellen Adair breakdown of this moment. Um, this is all applicable to accuracy, but it comes to this moment that I really want to talk about. Yeah. So James Earl Jones is at the plate. Billy D. Williams is pitching and they're slinging insults at each other. And it is fantastic. And you love them already. And by you, I mean, I do. I already love them. And then Bingo says, I'm going to throw my fastball. And then there is this delicious close-up shot of his fingers really close on the ball, the kind of shot we would all love to get in a real baseball game if somehow we could. But, and I don't know, Eric, if you remember this, I remember actually gasping when they showed that shot because the grip is nowhere near a fastball grip. And I know this, and I am a girl. It looks like <laughs> it could be a circle change or a Vulcan change, maybe. It doesn't look like any baseball grip that I'm super familiar with. He's got this one finger inching up, like maybe it's going to be like a, a Craig Kimbrell spike grip knuckle curve. And I think he's lying to him. He is not going to throw his fastball. That thing is going to dive. And then, then we see him throw the ball and there's like no break on it whatsoever, which I'm not faulting Billy D. Williams for not being able to throw a knuckle curve, but I'm guessing it's clearly meant to be a fastball, right? We're supposed to, we're not supposed to have this moment of like, he is lying. We're supposed to have that moment of, oh, right, just like Satchel Paige did to Josh Gibson that one time, he told him exactly what he was going to throw and he still got him out. In which case, can we have a fastball grip in that close-up, please? Mm. I will allow a two-seamer or a four-seamer. I mean, for me, this is really what the baseball accuracy section is for. It's for the things where, like, it would have been easy to do that right if you had just asked me, and I'm a girl. And for me, it's like, what's that sign that the concessions guy has? <laughs> so, this said, two other major baseball accuracy problems. In that final game, in that final at-bat... Leon Carter launches over home plate to hit a home run on an intentional walk. And by the rules of baseball, he should be out if he leaves the batter's box. It's true. So what is very fascinating to me here is that this thing happening of somebody jacking a homer on the fourth ball of an intentional walk happens in at least two other baseball movies that I can think of. I can't remember this. We've One of them it. is definitely Pride of the Yankees. But I think in Pride of the Yankees, a little bit of the ball catches just enough of the plate that he's able to get it without actually moving out of the batter's box. But it's so interesting to me that this has become a trope in baseball movies when, in fact, it could not happen in an actual baseball game. And it made me sort of wonder if there was some kind of, like, Pride of the Yankees original sin. 
like people see it in Pride of the Yankees and they're like, oh, right, right. We should do that thing like they do in Pride of the Yankees where he's getting an intentional walk. But then he decides he's going to hit a home run off the fourth ball. Well, especially when it's so egregious, right? Like I saw a Shohei Otani bat where he was trying to bunt and he fully stepped out of the batter's box when he was crouching down. I think that he didn't end up getting on base, so it ended up being a non-issue. But I remember thinking, that's not allowed. Like, he should be called out. And that is something that maybe a team would complain about, maybe it wouldn't. I'm also thinking about in the All-Star game when Ted Williams famously hit a home run off of an EFIS pitch by Truett Banks' Rip Sewell, I don't know if I'm actually saying his name right. I can't remember how to say it. All I remember is that Ted Williams hit a home run off of this unhittable EFIS pitch in the All-Star game. It's on YouTube. It's pretty cool. You should definitely look it up. And it was great, and it was celebrated, and he stepped out of the box to hit it, if you look at it, and it counted. But obviously, an intentional walk is Is a different. little different. Yeah. I also, if you watch it again... Leon Carter is basically standing on home plate to be able to hit the ball. Like, it's not like he's minutely out of the box. Right. He is in front of the catcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or in front of where the catcher would be because the catcher is off to the side. Yeah. So my last sad inaccuracy about this film, which I don't mind so much, but I just feel like it's worth mentioning, is that the film is supposed to take place in 1939, and Esquire Joe receives a call to play in the major leagues at the end of the film, which, of course, would not actually happen for another eight years. This is true. This is true. So I, uh, gosh, I'm really thinking, I do that a lot. Oh, I don't know. I Please make really, those noises again. I think that my accuracy score, I'm almost tempted to bump it up as I'm looking at my notes and as we're talking about this, because this is really like minutia stuff largely. And I really appreciate there being a level of detail put into this, even if it is not always a hundred percent true to form. Like for example, the Esquire Joe moment of being called up is really cool. It's about what? It's about six years, I think, too soon. Eight. Well, no, it's, I think it's six because I believe he signed a contract for the minor league team at the end of 45 and then played in 46 in the minors and then was in the majors in 47. And Esquire Joe does say he, he's going to sign me on a team, and if I do well, then I'll be on the Dodgers. So it seems like it is kind of a minor league contract that's being signed. And so that kind of perfectly sums up, oh, good eye to detail, but it's weirdly off by all of these years. And, and that's kind of where I am with a lot of these things. There's a lot of little details, too, that I really like. For example, Esquire Joe, the very first game that we see him play in the umpire is standing behind the pitcher. And that used to be a thing. And I believe has even happened in modern games a couple of times for various outstanding reasons. I think the historical reason for it was that in old, old-timey baseball, the umpire would stand behind the pitcher because the umpire did not, there was not yet, like, protective equipment for the umpire or something like that. Mm. And 
the fact that the umpire, I think, in that game is just like a guy in like a straw hat and overalls. It just felt very like an interesting thing to happen, a very interesting detail to put in that is accurate to, I don't know how accurate it was to baseball played in 1939 specifically, but I know that it was a thing that happened in baseball of a certain era and it seems totally plausible that this would be happening in a game. And it was just like a little a little detail that I appreciated and I thought was was very cool. I like that before the final game, you see a little bit of shadow ball mm-hmm. thrown in. Yeah. That, I again, was like, they don't make a big deal out of it. It's just a nice little, a nice little nod to baseball history of this team going through the, going through the little shadow ball game for the game as a, as a warm up. Shadow ball being a kind of mimed version of the game that sort of still tests people's reflexes, still is a way to connect as a team that does not actually involve a ball. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that I want to mention, well, two things. First, quickly, with the satchel page, the other thing, not just the invite pitch, but the thing that Bingo does towards the end of inviting the infield, of inviting the outfield in before the very yes, last, yes. that is also Sasha a satchel page, page would move. Also do that, yeah. yeah, and the I thought I said that, but may, maybe I didn't. Oh, I thought you only said maybe the I invite only pitch, thought right? it. Yeah, I probably only thought it. And also, Richard Pryor's character, who comically thinks that he can get into the major leagues by pretending he's not black, he's he's Hispanic, and then saying that he's Native American is a funny thing, but it's actually like based on real things that happened in baseball history. Yeah, it totally happened. In 1901, John McGraw, who at that point I believe was the manager of the Orioles, tried to add a player named Charlie Grant to the roster as his second baseman. And he tried to get around this sort of gentleman's agreement of not to integrate baseball by passing him off as a Cherokee named Charlie Tokahama. And so I think that that is clearly the inspiration for the turn that happens at the end with Richard Pryor. It seems like there were attempts also to have people of African descent as Hispanic players. One of those attempts was in 1911. The Cincinnati Reds signed two light-skinned players from Cuba, Armando Marsans and Rafael Almeida. Both of them had played in like Negro baseball leagues. They had both been in barnstorming leagues. You can find a lot of stories along these lines. And I guess I just wanted to point out that for being such a kind of broadly comic thing in the film, it's based in a real thing that that people did that were trying to get players on these teams. Yeah, no, I I admired the same thing about the film and I was just going to talk about it under a different category. But I think that that's one of something like that. You know, there were also there were all kinds of teams named the Cuban All-Stars. And I think that that kind of thing in this movie, even though it's not trying to depict like it's not a biopic about somebody really inflated my baseball accuracy score where I was initially going to give it a, a slightly lower score. All right. All right. So yeah, 55, I think. I'll stick with 50. I feel kind of bad about it. I feel like it probably should be up, but I'll, I'll stick to 50. Awesome. So let's move on to our next category, which is storytelling. For storytelling, I'm going to go 60. 
I think that there is some really good storytelling. There are moments where I feel like it's kind of amazing, but it's also like kind of weird in parts. And some of that I think is really fun. And some of it had me scratching my head a little bit. I think that the introduction of the film, the the very beginning of it, is so fascinating. Yeah, I, I wanted love... to ask you, like, what did you think about the inclusion of the newsreel? Well, I love, first of all, it's a universal film, I believe. It gives them a really great opportunity to use the old universal newsreel introduction, which is cool. And it's pretty deft storytelling, in my opinion. So the very first thing that we get, I believe a lot of these old-timey newsreels had various sections to them, right? They had different stories. And so the first thing that we have is Hitler occupies Czechoslovakia. Boom, right away. You know where we are. You know that we are. I mean, specifically, I think that was in the spring of 1939. But even if you're not thinking about that, you're like, great, we're in like World War II times. Hitler is taking over places. Stop doing that, Hitler. Okay, but like we're like late 30s, early 40s. Got it. That's such an efficient bit of storytelling. Then we move on to this weird kind of like oddity sideshow thing where there's a guy eating razors. There's somebody on a bed of nails putting a cigarette out on his tongue. And it's a little strange. I think at this moment, you leaned over to me and were like, did we rent the right movie? <laughs> yes. <laughs> because it seemed very much to be something leading us in a very, very different direction. And then we cut to this... Oh, racism. Oh, my gosh. Here we are at a baseball game, an exhibition game for the Negro Leagues. And it's funny because even though... It's this well-attended game that's at Yankee Stadium. The way that these things are juxtaposed, you can't help but feel like, oh, is this another oddity? Is this another strange thing? Something that is somehow separate from like a real sporting event with athletic skills? It's, it's very much an other. It's very much a thing that we're supposed to look at with our head cocked maybe a little bit. That is how I felt in terms of what the what that sequence was telling me. And I just thought that set the stage so well for the showmanship and the antics that the team has to do and that so much of the movie is about to be able to play ball, to be able to feel safe playing ball, to diffuse tensions, uh, to avoid like the ire of the white crowds. And as strange as it is, it's a super efficient way of laying that out in a pretty brief amount of time. Yeah, I agree. I feel sort of two ways about that newsreel. Similarly, two ways that I feel about some of the other elements of the film. And in some ways, I feel like the newsreel kind of like writes a check that the rest of the film doesn't necessarily cash. Yeah. It sort of makes you feel like you're setting up for a more serious film than you end up getting in terms of the commentary. And that's not a criticism about the film that we end up getting. But I remember at the time thinking, oh, this is interesting. This is a very interesting way to tell the story. And then ultimately feeling like at the end of the film, I don't know 
how well, even if that set me up exposition-wise for what I was about to witness, I don't know if it set me up tonally for the totally. rest of the film. Yeah, because that, that beginning, that newsreel is so, it's funny and it's interesting, but it's very dark and there's a certain kind of, I want to say like bitterness behind it. It feels like something Spike Lee would do it if he were doing little. this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Where there's, there's definitely an eye towards entertainment. There's an eye towards telling a good story, but it feels very political. It feels very outraged mm -hmm. and... You're right. I don't know that the movie that we end up seeing matches what that initial newsreel kind of leads us to believe it's going to be. It's still very good, but and that's why I'm kind of like, I'm at 60, but it's like, oh, this really could have been a 70 if some of these things just conformed to one thing a little bit better. Yeah, like, to be clear, I want to see the movie that follows that newsreel, and also I want to see this movie the way that it exists. It's just sort of like the two things don't quite go together. Yeah. So my overall grade for storytelling is... And I know that scouts never use this, Ooh. but I'm going to go 65. Yeah, yeah, welcome to the dark side. Welcome to the dark side, because I was just really torn about this scoring and about a, a lot of the storytelling things in this film, because overall, I loved this movie. Oh, God, me too. I loved it so much. And some of the things that keep it back from getting a higher storytelling grade... Again, to be clear, if you have not listened to our earlier podcast, storytelling is direction, writing, and editing all kind of rolled into one category. And what holds this film back is the editing, which I think is aggressive at times. And the, like, vast amount of ADR. There's so much ADR in this movie. And some of the editing also is very, like, overtly making something more comic than it needs to be. Which does, I'm thinking about the Esquire Joe introduction when he catches the fly ball. When he throws the ball back, and it's this wonderful, like, oh my god, look at this amazing five-tool player, which is also why he's like, oh, maybe a little Willie Mays in there, too, and not just Jackie Robinson. Oh, he's so Willie Mays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That in this intense action moment of him throwing the ball to home, when there are all of these players that have already, like, gone all around the bases, they cut to this person, they cut to this person. They cut to a horse. That cut to the horse is simultaneously so unnecessary and dumb, but I also kind of loved it. Yeah. Which yeah, is why I'm, yeah. which is like a, a perfect example of being at 60. It reminded me actually of when they cut to the apple in mm. City Field. Yeah. When in broadcasts of Mets games, they just cut to like the totally inanimate apple and you don't see the apple like rising or falling. <laughs> they just cut to the apple. Anyway, it reminded me of that. And then like similarly right after that in the in the chaos that ensues after the throw is successful and he's out at home, the players like trying to like get back to their bases and all of the craziness it's really fun but it it's also like a little like zany i guess yeah yeah which i appreciate so just 
you know, there were a couple other very quickly of storytelling points that I thought were sort of confusing before we go on to discuss the kind of like genre fight of this film, which is just that there were some sort of confusing storytelling points about the bad guys who work for the evil owner whose name is Sally Potter. And the way in which we see them discover that someone is foiling them is neither presented as a mystery that we then uncover, nor is it necessarily clear enough that as it goes on, we understand what's happening. Mm. It's sort of like afterwards we piece together, oh, okay, that's why that happened in that scene. But it doesn't feel like the twist was that that was why that happened. It just sort of felt like muddy storytelling. Sure. So all of these things kind of hold me back from going any higher than 65, despite the fact that I, I, I loved this movie. Yeah, I a couple of other storytelling things real quick. I think that in the introduction of the film, the character of Furry Taylor is also a very brief but efficient storytelling device. He's the kind of disheveled guy juggling outside of the stadium. And then you kind of find out that he's a former player who the owner just kind of through to the curb when he was no longer useful to the team. And between that and then like seeing how when Rainbow gets hurt, he sort of like tosses him to the side, totally charges the team for the expenses to like get him home. There's such a like clear understanding of how like precarious the position is for each person on the team. So the big idea of the film of going out and forming this team doesn't seem like this like harebrained idea, but like a smart survival tactic, which yeah. I think is like really good storytelling. No, I had exactly the same thought that it's the the velocity and the efficiency of the storytelling at the very beginning is so great. You very quickly find out oh, okay, this owner guy, even though he is black, he is bad news. He doesn't like this old player. When Rainbow gets hit in the head and is decommissioned, all he says is, it's not going to hurt our chance for the pennant. Yeah. Like, we very quickly see then why Bingo Long would want to take off on his own. His idea is very quickly introduced in the scene with him and James Earl Jones in the cafe. And quickly, we're along to the premise of our film without it feeling unearned. Like, yeah. it's very fast. We're taking off on the journey that we're meant to be taking off on in this film, but it feels so deserved at the same time. And I really... That won a lot of points with me early on. Something that I understand with the storytelling, but I I don't know, I sort of wasn't totally contented by, was the one dimensionality of the owners being villains. It's a kind of comic villaindom, in my opinion. I think that, like, I mean, God, Sally, even, he's a funeral home director. He even rides around in a hearse. Like, it feels very over the top compared with some of the more delicate and nuanced things about that world and what players were going through at that time. And But I think that this is the fight of this movie. Yeah. Like, I think what, in a way, keeps the film from being great is the fact that, though it's dealing with the hardships that these players dealt with, you know, racism and segregation and owners that treated them like indentured servants, that the movie has also set itself up to be a comedy. Yeah. So it sort of has to skip across the surface of those things. Yeah. And like, I mean, that said, a lot of it is is very funny and effective. God, that scene in the sauna 
is is in incredible. incredible. They're all just sitting and steaming and like conniving. As and soon as it came on, I just started laughing. Oh. I was like, "There's a scene in the sauna. They're all the owners are in a sauna." And then, and then Bertha, who is the owner of one of the teams who, point of accuracy, there were female owners in the Negro Leagues, that she comes in and she has not been treated seriously by Sally and they are antagonists. So like she's like on the villain side, but you sort of see her as like less of a villain because mostly she just wants crowds to come out and like to do that. There's not like a vindictive she's side. She's always advocating for the Negro Leagues playing the bingo long traveling all-stars and motorcades. Yeah. And in that moment, God, that moment in the sauna where she, she storms in and she's in. like wearing a pink towel, but she's and a still gigantic got, hat. She's still got the fancy hat and like a pearl necklace. It's amazing. Oh, it's so good. There's one other storytelling thing that I have, and I think it's a little bit like the thesis of the film. And this is why I I do ultimately, and I love the quirkiness. I love weird, quirky stuff. And so I don't mean to like disparage some of like the horse shot. I'm like, that's really cool. But it just doesn't necessarily like the puzzle pieces don't exactly fit all of the time. But the dynamic between James Earl Jones and Billy Dee Williams, I think is really interesting and good. I think that there are little moments of that where like Billy Dee Williams remembers James Earl Jones mentioning of... Uh, du Bois as Rolls Royce. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's funny. Little things like that. But also there is that pivotal 4th of July, I believe first game against a white team while they're barnstorming. And James Earl Jones is reluctant to put on a show. Like the white crowd is like getting threatened and angry by how, how much Bingo's team is just destroying them. And so they start clowning as kind of a, a way to lighten the mood, a way to kind of protect themselves. And James Earl Jones doesn't want to be a part of it. He says, I ain't going to shine for no white folks, and that's that. And this is, you know, from this intellectual catcher who's been quoting E.B. Du Bois and quoting Marx, talking about seizing the means of production. And Billy D. Williams says, you only got to pretend, and they won't know we're pretending, so we're one up on them. And I think that that follows through throughout the film up until the very last line of the film, which is so good, where Billy Dee Williams says to James Earl Jones, we can't lose, never. And it's this amazing, melancholic celebration that also has so much defiance in it that I think really encapsulates so much of what these antics, what the clowning, all of that was about, this don't let them get the best of you idea, this sort of rebellious celebration, this laugh to keep from crying attitude that I think is present throughout the film. And that like, did it go as far as it could have in that? No, but I do think that it is still there. That is really wonderful. And I think you're so right that that scene where they're performing for the white audience for the first time is really the sort of like wounded heart of this film mm, in a way. It's really good. Because the whole thing happens 
because Richard Pryor's, well, I mean, the whole thing happens because one of the Bingo Long All-Stars gets tripped and there's a lot of acrimony in the stands and they're all worried sort of for their lives. And, right, because he gets tripped and then he's like mad that he got tripped. And then he's mad that he got tripped, like right. t- totally justifiably. Yeah. And they, they, of course, they've been pushed to this point just because of the connivances of their own owner. So now they're being forced to play in front of this white crowd. And then Richard Pryor's character tears his pants. So you see his underwear. He does this unintentionally. At least that's the storytelling that I get. I wasn't sure about that. I was a little unsure. It's a little ambiguous. It's a little ambiguous, which I am always on board for. And then Bing Along realizes, okay, we've got to make these people laugh. For our lives. Yeah. We we have to figure out how to fool them. And so then there's the player that is, you know, facing the wrong direction in the batter's box. Oh. And <laughs> then Bingo buys the firecrackers off of the kids and throws one of them at Leon Carter's character. Which is also just a really great detail because he only knows about those kids because those kids had lit fireworks and thrown them into the dugout. So it's literally making a positive out of a negative. Yes, yes, completely. But it's it's complicated, right? To be like a couple of white people in 2020 laughing about this movie that at, on a sort of a meta level, we're not laughing at that moment. I mean, you can't see James Earl Jones in those scenes and in that earlier scene when the like black store owner is like, no, you just got to kick the mule and do a cakewalk into town. And yeah. he's like, I'm not doing that. You feel for him so much because he just wants to be a ball player and he doesn't want to have to do, you know, shuffle off to Buffalo right. in order to right. sell that. He just wants to be a ball player. He wants to do his job. Yeah. yeah. So you feel for him so much in those moments. But like on a meta level, what are we doing? But like laughing at these people. You know, mm. we are watching a film on a meta level that is making light of the plight of their situation right. in order to make a comedy that is this movie. And it's totally delightful. The movie is so wonderful. But I kept on being put in mind of that moment in Tony Stone. So Eric and I saw the play by Lydia Diamond, Tony Stone, off-Broadway last year. So good. Amazing. Like, life-changingly good. And there's this moment where all of the actors are doing shadow ball. So they're throwing, you know, a non-existent ball to each other, but they're also doing clowning. And to my memory, the whole thing is preceded by, and I don't have the script of this, and I only saw it the one time, and this was a while ago, so I don't totally remember, but Tony's saying something like, I just don't feel like shining today. Right. But she still has to go out there and do it, even though she doesn't feel like it. So we have that information that she, or maybe it was another player, doesn't want to do the clowning act. And then we watch all of these actors in the room with us do this, like, actually excruciatingly long, grueling, physically difficult scene. Yeah. And it goes on for so long. It goes on like three times as long as you think it's going to go on. And then it ends. And then they just pant and look out into the audience. And in that moment, there is no, I felt like as an audience member, there is no right audience response. Because what we're actually witnessing is these people's pain 
that this is what they had to do. And it starts out, if I remember that moment correctly, it starts out kind of lively and then gets bigger to the point that it's like grotesque. Totally. And so I think that it, the way that it landed on me was that I had many different experiences of what that thing was as it happened to the point that I ended with the same level of like despair and kind of shame that I think they were all feeling as players yeah. in that moment and like anger and outrage. And yeah, that oh God, it was so good. It that was moment so was good. Amazing. And that, that moment was so affecting. I think it was one of the most affecting moments of theater that I saw all of last year. And part of it is also this element that like we were seeing the actors going through that exact same thing for our benefit as an audience. Right. They were doing it. We were in the space with human beings going through that exact same exhausting physical difficulty. Yeah. And and reliving that sort of, I guess, I don't know, cultural moment of shame of being put upon i mean you know i feel like shame is not even exactly the right word of having something else forced on you yeah and um very quickly tony stone is a play that is based on tony stone of course who for people who don't really know negro league baseball was a player for the indianapolis clowns among which is, some other teams with, right but the clowns were the team that the bingo long story was in part kind of based on and those antics especially were inspired largely from the indianapolis clowns is my understanding yes so so this is not just a separate anecdote it's very much tied into the exact type of baseball that's depicted in this movie yeah the exact type of clowning that surrounded the exact type of baseball and i am wearing my tony stone shirt today i know that nobody can see it except for Aaron. yeah um I think that what's complicated then is that, you know, this is a really delightful movie. Mm -hmm. So on the other hand, I I loved this movie and I, I love it when people make a comedy out of complicated things. Yes. Like I love Shakespeare's problem plays and I love it when things are are sort of uncomfortable but funny at the same time. The coffin so, trick sort of felt like the bed trick to me. That was the yes, other Shakespeare thing. Yes, totally. <laughs> yes, it's sort of a Shakespearean problem play. Yeah. This film. And so I I love it so much. And so on the one hand, what I want is a, a serious movie or like maybe even a serious television series at this time that goes into life in the Negro Leagues. And maybe we can have one with Tony Stone in it or, or maybe Johnson or... Tony Morgan, who were the other two women who were in the Negro Leagues with Tony. And, like, I want that story to be taken seriously, but I also want this movie to exist in its sort of, like, weird, contradictory, difficulty genre-bending. Yeah. I also love that they took things that are sad, like, as you were mentioning earlier, you know, Richard Pryor trying to decide if he's going to pretend to be Carlos Navarro or a Native American. And they they made like a comedic subplot out of it. And I also really loved when he was trying to figure out how to calculate batting average, uh, yeah. which is so good. And also I was like, who has a hard time calculating batting average? The only thing I could think of is if somebody was like, do you take plate appearances or at-bats? Anyway, 
sidebar. <laughs> but I felt like this was actually a version of the film making a really good comedic sequence out of the sad fact that, like, we will never know how many home runs Josh Gibson hit. Yeah. Like, the fact that scorekeeping and record keeping was a problem in the Negro, Negro Leagues, and we don't have that. And that was why Charlie Snow was asking Rainbow, hey, do you think that you could keep records for us right. so that people know what we did? Oh, I love those scenes. So good. So good. I have one more thing, and it's it's sort of something that you referred to earlier on, okay. which is the last thing that I love about the storytelling in this movie is the way it sets up this world that's real and mythic at the same time. Okay. So early on in the film, Rainbow gets hit in the head and is deprived of his ability to speak. And I thought at the time, what kind of injury would make you like bodily fine and mentally fine, but the only thing is that you couldn't speak? Like how plausible? is that there is a moment like right after it happens that i think he moves quick or something and then gets dizzy and sits down which i think was the way of confirming that he can't actually be a catcher or that he can't that he can't be a player anymore yes yeah nevertheless halfway through the film i thought oh no that was just setting up the myth part of the world of this film and I had that thought when there's that amazing shot of Esquire Joe running forever to catch this ball. He like runs through a little shack yeah. and he basically like topples into a tree in order to catch this ball. This distance that does feel like a Josh Gibson home run type of distance that if that were a normal ballpark, that would be like the parking lot or Lansdowne Street or Absolutely. the ocean or something. Yeah. Like it is so far and yet he's able to run and catch the ball. And that was the moment when I thought, oh, myth is part of the flavor of this film. Yeah. And Rainbow's recovery, his magical recovery is also part of that world. And so was the notion that they would call all of the guys to make the all-star teams in one long session at a phone booth while they get progressively drunker and drunker. And so is the notion that James Earl Jones could move the dead body of a woman from one coffin to the next while his hands are tied. Mm -hmm. Like, partly I say all of this just because I'm the child of a folklorist. And so I sort of see these things that feel kind of like a folk tale. Yeah, we're like extra chapters and like the metamorphoses where like Ovid is now like yes. and now I will tell you about Esquire Joe and the very long ball that <laughs> the we very answer. long catch <laughs> yeah but partly I was also thinking about Joe's article on Satchel Page because I'd read it fairly recently and he was talking about how Page was really the stuff of myth and the stuff of legend and he was more like Houdini than he is like another ball player. And I came to feel like the that that's actually another way that the film is an homage to Page. Is yeah. the way in which myth is braided into the story. Yeah. Another Page thing at one point, I think it might even be at the beginning, he's got his invite pitch, but he's also, I think in the James Earl Jones at bat, he mentions his vanish ball. And mm -hmm. this just brings up that Satchel Page had so many names for so many pitches that he had. Most and a lot of them names. were like kind of variations on the same kind of pitch. But like he had... I've got the hook'em pitch. I've got the whoopsie pitch. Yeah, I've got exactly. the upsie daisy. I've got the... I'm making all of that up. But yeah. <laughs> but... But that, that was kind of the spirit of Satchel Paige. And he also, like, was a showman about it. 
this movie is the perfect place for his spirit to go in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. Although I think he had kind of an attitude and probably didn't have Bingo Long's like amenability to a lot of things. I think that he, if I remember correctly, he had more of Leon's like sense of like dignity and like outrage at at being like harassed by he people. He was a little bit of a showboater as far as I know. Of course, I did not know him personally, but like... But I think that he liked the kind of showboating that he liked and not the kind that he didn't like, yeah. as as many people are. Yeah. Even I don't know that he, like, took crap from people in the way that Billy Dee Williams' Bingo Long does. Yeah, well, you wouldn't see Satchel Paige being like, okay, then let's pick potatoes. Yeah. Which, oh, we didn't talk about that segment, but that segment is very painful to watch. And very interesting parallels in terms of, and something that I'm not sure how I feel about. Again, this is me not knowing enough about the era, I guess. But the black owners being referred to as the slave masters and then like them realizing that they need to kind of do these antics to be successful in the league Mm -hmm. or to be successful while barnstorming and then to literally end up working in a field and how these are all variations on slavery and and yeah it's sort of like even if you think that you're going to become your own master there's still some version of bowing and scraping that you have to do yeah it's just a circular thing yeah yeah Yeah. which i think the film does a great job of putting forward without at any point even almost making explicit not i was gonna say shoving down your throat but it's so far from that it's almost like i think it takes really thinking about the ways in which those different story points develop to realize that that is the thesis of the film is you will always be bowing and scraping to somebody. Yeah. And in those cases, much like how Bingo Long sort of says, they don't know that we're fooling and sort of that gives us a one up on them, Mm -hmm. that when they're in the fields working, they start joking and playing around and, and there seems to be a little bit of subversiveness in that. And, I think that that does speak a lot to a certain kind of attitude of like if you are if you are being oppressed in this way you can win by finding joy despite the oppressor's attempts to kill it. Yeah. I have just one other storytelling note which I'm going to read verbatim. Uniforms are great, but also totally 1976. Oh. They they are wonderful, but they remind me a lot of, like, the Houston Astros uniforms of the time, which I don't know if I'm still allowed to think that the 1970s Houston Astros uniforms were really cool, but I do think that they were really cool. Yeah, it's true. Some of the other uniforms, I think, are really look really good. I mean, I said the thing about the House of David ones, but the uniforms, by and large, I think are pretty, but yeah, the... The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings uniforms are definitely super duper 70s, for sure. And I didn't put it under baseball accuracy because I actually loved this about it. Mm. And I love <laughs> this shot with the guy where he's like, I just got a musical note. <laughs> anyway, so at long last, we're going to move on to our next category, which will not be as long, I can assure you. And that is acting. I think that there is 
80-grade chemistry between James Earl Jones and Billy Dee Williams, but I think the film on the whole is a 60. I, th I think their chemistry is what makes the film. I also loved Mabel King, who plays Bertha DeWitt. She's great. Um, but there there were some... And, and plenty of people were, like, good, but not exceptional. Yeah. And then there were a couple of sort of, like, minor, not-so-good uh, performances. I think I'll go 65. And Fair. I think that some of that really is... Some of the heavy hitters just like really lifting the film yeah. for me. I think that, oh God, just like watching James Earl Jones do anything. Mm -hmm. And this was something I was going to bring up in storytelling and some of the issues that we were talking about. But like, he's just someone who can effortlessly carry this sense of dignity and gravitas with him, but also is totally capable of like flipping the switch and being like the playful guy dancing at the club. And it's so incredible to watch. There's one like super subtle moment where they're learning how to kind of cakewalk down Main Street to get people to come to the barnstorming. And James Earl Jones is kind of indignantly riding along with his motorcycle. And over this kind of montage of them getting better at it over the course of this one time. It helps that they move from the white part of town to the black part of town. Right, 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 right. It's true. It's true. That the there's this one shot towards the end where they're like, getting the hang of it. It's the getting the hang of it. And I'm okay at this actually part of the montage. It's like a training montage that is like not over the course of days or weeks, but like over the course of however long it takes to get from one side of this town to the other. But you know they're going to be okay as soon as the song comes on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you sort of have your doubts before the song comes on, and then the song comes on, and you're like, they're going to figure this out. Right, and the song is, like, reassuring in the same way that the song is reassuring in the car getting stolen. Yes. That, like, the car gets stolen, and it seems kind of dangerous, but we know that we're okay because James Earl Jones is riding his motorcycle while the Lone Ranger theme song is playing. So it cuts to James Earl Jones at the end of that montage. And like, he just ever so slightly, like, he doesn't give a whole lot away, but he ever so slightly, like, gets his shoulders involved in the dancing. Oh, man. And it's just so oh, good. It's so, so good. All the ensemble, I think, is by and large wonderful. There are like some stylistic things that I'm not like 100% on board with, but like by and large, and Stan Shaw. Stan Shaw is wonderful. Who I mainly know as one of the detectives from The Monster Squad, which is one of my favorite childhood films. And he's so sweet and innocent and good and and very plausible as a baseball player i meant to mention this during baseball accuracy absolutely. and i forgot yes very plausible and billy d williams is incredible like i i think he he effortlessly carries this film i think that he does such a good job of navigating a lot of the issues that we've actually been talking about for yeah. the last however long and I think some of the performances that I'm less a fan of have more to do with storytelling and directorial or screenwriting choices. I think that a lot of the like villain type characters are kind of one dimensional. 
But I think that the people portraying them do a very good job doing the thing that's asked of them. Yeah. But yeah, I think I think it's 65 really good. is totally fair. Yeah. Yeah. I could also easily go 65, but I didn't want to have two 65s. That would be too crazy. Oh my God. So our next category, this is my pet category because I'm I'm usually in love with the catcher character in any film. This is delightfulness of catcher character. Okay, okay, okay. I cannot imagine a catcher character being more delightful or lovable or crushable than James Earl Jones mm. as Leon Carter. When I think about him in this movie, my heart actually hurts a little bit. I mean, he's W.E.B. Du Bois quoting socialist, idealist, power-hitting catcher with a stance like a righty Matt Olson. I mean, he he always objects to wanting to have to ham things up, and it deeply endears me to him, those moments. Like, I just fall in love with him so hard. And he's really the one at the end who is shown to have the noble ideals of the League. It sort of feels like Bingo was just like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. What if we took off our on our own? And then, like, he fights the henchmen with tied hands, and he punches his way out of a coffin, and he is utterly, transfixingly magnetic in every moment. So, oh God, 80, 80 grade delightfulness of Catcher. It's so good. It's so good. It's great. <sighs> I, you know, there's a part of me that wants to give Gina Davis the slight advantage because she's Gina Davis. I mean, and, you can. Everybody's like, entitled to their opinion. I There's a part of me that wants to go like 79.99. But I think I've got to go 80 also. I think that he's he's amazing. I think it's one of the great catcher characters in film. And I can't believe I didn't even I didn't know even about know it. it existed. He's <gasps> so fun he's so dignified i think that there's a lot of complexity to the character i agree a hundred percent with everything that you said in terms of his ideals and what he wants for the league his foresight when esquire joe gets signed and he foresees the end of the negro leagues which is like kind of what happened he is just so smart so, so smart. aware oh such a catcher He's amazing. So yeah, I'll I'll echo that. I'll echo 80. So our next category, while we cool down just a little bit, is delightfulness of announcer. Delightfulness of announcer. Delightfulness doesn't really work because there's not much of an announcer. I'm going to go 40 because of the same reason that I went with a semi-low score for a league of their own. I don't think that it has to do with the acting of it i think it's just like there's not much of it there it's really like a storytelling point the only announcer there i think is in that very last game the kind of like winner takes all sort of game that bingo has set up with sally right yeah. there's not any anybody else i think so to be honest i'm gonna say 35 because i don't even remember the announcer I think I've previously scored 40 when I'm like, yeah, the announcer's kind of forgettable. I literally don't remember there being an announcer in this film, and that just may uh, clue into Eric as a closer watcher of films than I am. Or maybe I was just looking at the baseball 
too much, but yeah, I have no memory of there being an announcer in this film. So there is an announcer in the film. I think he has like three or four lines. He basically is like, hey, where's Leon? Because Leon's been like captured by the henchmen to like not participate in the game. And then he's like, oh, it's the end of this inning. And here's the score. And I think he does something like that a couple of times. And so there's really nothing there. And so it is below average. He does a fine job doing it. The one thing in just a storytelling way that I think makes it notable is that I think the fact that there is an announcer at all at this game shows how important this game is. So I think it's a really good device in terms of showing what the stakes are, that we are in a big full stadium with an announcer as opposed to the earlier, the beginning of the barnstorming where there was like one umpire in overalls behind the pitcher and like you had to like parade downtown to get people even to come. And so in terms of showing the arc and the trajectory of this team, I think that that's useful. So I don't want to go too low, but it is below average. That's fair. So our final category is lack of misogyny, so phrased such that a high grade is a good thing. And I am somewhere between a 40 and a 45, I think. And that's an era-adjusted 45. So besides some floozies, the only female character in the movie is Mabel King's character, the female owner, Bertha DeWitt. We have mentioned her before. And the pluses here are that she is mostly portrayed as intelligent. Certainly, Mabel King plays her as intelligent in her dealings with the other male owners. And Sally Potter, the villain owner, says all of these terrible misogynist things to her. Oh, God, yeah. But he's clearly been portrayed as a bad guy from the first moment because I contest that portraying misogyny as a bad thing gives you lack of misogyny points. So... The grade would be higher if the player that she was sleeping with who had been on her team didn't also make a disparaging remark about her flab because he's supposed to be a sympathetic character. And I appreciate that her main function is as a smart businesswoman who won't take no for an answer. And some part of me appreciates that there was not an insipid love story somehow shoehorned into the movie. But she is a little bit of a horn dog, which, it, like, that's how she's introduced. Yeah. Which does limit my praise for her a little bit in terms of a character. That's why I said 40 to 45, you know, but I think that the fact that there is a lot of misogyny being portrayed as a bad thing is what bumps it up to 40 from 30, because then really the only other female characters in it are complete sex objects, like not even love interests, just sex objects. So that's not awesome. Yeah, it's true. I'm going to go 40 because... Yeah, for all the reasons that you're saying, there's Violet, who is the girl that Bingo has been seeing. And then it turns out that James Earl Jones has, well, he says that he has also been seeing her in a, in a like, kind of fun, colorful way. And then suddenly Bingo Long is not interested in her. He's interested in this other girl, Perlene. And when he mentions this to Violet, Violet's like, well, Perlene's maybe moved on. And Perlene is with James Earl Jones at that time. 
And it's just seeing these first two women who have speaking parts being kind of objects that are being kind of like, which of the guys has her at any given moment? I mean, Perlene has some very fun lines, like when Bingo and Rainbow barge in to propose the barnstorming team to Leon, Perlene says, you ain't said nothing about no threesies, which I did laugh out loud at. And then immediately afterwards says, I got a generous soul, but I ain't no Santa Claus. <laughs> which like like there's some good lines a little like showcasing of it but like the situation is not there well depicted there are so many good jokes in that scene yeah there really really are yeah i'm not gonna do damage to the scene by trying to quote some of them and not remembering them from seeing it only once but and as far as bertha goes i think i've said most of what i've wanted to say there are good things about her. She's with the villains, but is against Sally, so seems like not as bad. She's kind of willing to work with the team. She wants to have games with them. She wants the crowds to be happy, which is what her dad taught her, who she like inherited the team from. But yeah, she's also introduced kind of having an inappropriate sexual relationship with Isaac that is driven by the power dynamic of him being a player for the team that she owns. And he's like trying to get out of it. Like it's clearly non-consensual. Yeah, if it were consensual, I'd be fine with it, but it's not consensual. And I also don't like that it's sort of put forward that the reason that it wouldn't be consensual is because she is a larger woman. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. They're like, there's that moment where they're thinking they're going to lose that game at the end. And Isaac is like, oh, I'm just imagining all that flab or something. Yeah, yeah. And he's trying to get out. At the very beginning, when we see them together, he's trying to like extricate himself from the room and saying like, I've got batting practice. And she's like, batting practice is right here, right now, which is a good line, but I'm not sure that it's like a good line. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. And then when this is all in the montage of Bingo recruiting members of the team, which is wonderful, but in that phone call where Bingo is trying to recruit him for the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings, there is, again, like a little bit of a joke, like a knowing joke at her expense of like, well, we hear you're working overtime, but not on the field. And like, people are laughing outside of the phone booth. And yeah, no. 40. Yeah, 40. So now we're going to move along to our next section, which is titled creatively, yes or no. First question, would this movie be better with Kevin Costner in it? Not really. I mean, he could be the weirdly white-suited, all-white Branch exactly Ricky character. That's I was going to say. I guess who's like trying to bring Esquire Joe into the mix or like one of the random white people that's in the stands. But I feel like in both cases, you'd kind of just be like, oh, hey, there's Kevin Costner. Yeah. So my first thought was no, like absolutely this movie does not need Kevin Costner and it doesn't need Kevin Costner. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, oh, actually, if he were playing the guy in the all white suit, who's sort of like a scout, I would be delighted by that. That would be okay with me. So I'm going to say yes, this movie would be slightly better with Kevin Costner in it, or maybe even value neutral, but I would not mind Kevin Costner being in it. Yeah, but Kevin, don't wear that white suit. I mean, actually do, maybe. Oh, gosh, I don't know. It's a little on the nose. That's not going to be in the Spike Lee version. <laughs> True. Next question. Does this movie reference Babe Ruth? It sort, sort of does. does. 
Tell me how it sort of does. Well, there are a bunch of baby Ruth bars that Bingo grabs, and then he uses one of them to put into the gas tank of the car of the bad guys who have his car at their used car lot, and he wants to steal his car back. That's true. That's true. The only other thing that is indirect in terms of referencing is just that James Earl Jones's character is clearly based on Josh Gibson. and Who was sometimes called the Black Babe Ruth. Right. He was sometimes called the Black Babe Ruth. And some people, apparently, at the time, who had seen both of them play, actually called Ruth the White Josh Gibson. Yes, which I appreciate. Although I think Ruth came first. So yeah. it would make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To to nevertheless, just because he came second to call him the Black Babe Ruth. But many people contend that he was a better hitter. So it's true. Next question. Is there a dog? I think there's an off-screen dog, but that's the only one that I clocked. There is an on-screen dog. Really? Yes. Because the only one that I clocked was in that same phone montage when we get to Fat Sam and he's like sitting around the table with all of his family in the house. He goes... Get that mangy dog out of this house. And there's like a howl in the background. And I was like, if that's all there is, I'm still pretty happy. <laughs> yeah, but there is an actual dog on screen. There is the same dog on the porch of the house opposite the whatever, like general store where the guy has works who has demanded that they cakewalk into town. I don't know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. So in the establishing oh, yeah. shot, you're you're sort of seeing it from the porch opposite the street and you see there's a person standing there and then there's a dog. And then when they appear later, when they show up after the game to get their money, you see the same shot and there's the same person and the dog is in exactly the same position. So that is either some bad editing or a very good dog. Oh, sweetie. Last question. Are Yankees fans the main antagonist of this film? No. No, they're not. No. It's the, racism. The Yeah, well, and also, I mean, it's sort of, but it's it's the... It's the owners and the owner's henchmen. I think that I understand why, but I think that like one of the issues that I have with this film is that it seems like there is limited threat and danger from white people in this film, actually. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that when they're parading through the streets, they get a couple of like scowls. But like, I don't think they're super threatened. There are people booing them at the games, but it doesn't really feel dangerous and even when there are people shooting at them with the retrieval of the car there's that lone ranger music that's playing to make it feel safe and that just it it feels like that is probably for the fact that it's trying to be like a mostly comedic film it feels like it feels like racial tensions are mostly sort of softened yes totally yes Yeah, no, I think that that is 100% true. But for me, that's just part and parcel of everything being sort of softened because it's a comedy. Yeah. You know that nobody's going to die, probably. Yeah. Honestly, even when Richard Pryor gets cut up by the henchman. Yeah, you don't think, oh, my God, he's dead. You think, how bad of shape is he going to be in? Yeah. And it's like, it's very bad. Somebody has splattered red paint all over him. And that's even played a little bit for jokes right up until the end where like, he's like, oh God, what position does he play? Does he play left field or right field? He's somewhere in the outfield. He is one of the corner outfielders. 
but right before it happens, he's like, guys, if you do this, who's going to play my position? <laughs> like, right, right, he's right. still thinking about the game. So moving on to our next quick segment, which is Six Degrees of Baseball. So uh, James Earl Jones is obviously Mr. Baseball movie after only maybe Kevin Costner. But speaking of Richard Pryor, he was also a ball player in Brewster's Millions, which I have not seen. I honestly don't. I think that's one of those movies that I saw scenes of when I was a kid. So I have that kind of like dream like like when you dream about a room that you've never been in kind of thing where you're like, I have all these details in my mind, but I'm actually not sure if I've actually been to this place. That's my feeling of Brewster's Millions. That is how I feel about most films that I saw when I was a child. The one thing that I would add that is not baseball movie related in terms of people in this, but that definitely continues like a weird trend that I've decided exists is that while not being originally a movie, August Wilson's Fences, which is an incredible masterpiece of the American theater, which has a pretty good film adaptation that's only a couple of years old with Viola Davis oh, and Denzel so Washington, oh, it's so has good. baseball as a pretty major, it, it's a pretty big part of the storytelling that August Wilson is doing. James Earl Jones originated the lead role yes. in Fences, and that was when he won his second Tony. He won his first Tony playing a boxer, and he, he won his second Tony playing a former baseball player. And then when he left the production, he was replaced by Billy D. Williams. What? Yes. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, particularly because they don't at all feel like the same type. I mean, they're such good actors that I know they could play the same character, but that's incredible. And I was also thinking about the fact that it's funny that he played so many athletes despite not knowing anything about baseball. It's sort of like how I am always playing Republicans. Yeah, and quick shout out. If you have any interest in the consequence of actors and actor choices, there's a really wonderful video on YouTube it's so that good. shows... Because Denzel Washington plays the same role in the movie, but he also played it in a Broadway revival, which I did not see because a lot of people wanted to see that revival that shows one of the pivotal scenes of that character in that play, shows the James Earl Jones version and then the Denzel version. And they're both incredible in entirely different ways. And it's a really interesting thing to watch. And I would very much recommend it. Yes, plug it in on YouTube. Probably you have time. So moving on to our last section, did you have a favorite moment in this film? I think my favorite moment is the series of scenes that you mentioned before where Richard Pryor is obsessed with baseball stats, <laughs> but not sure how to figure them out. So he's like talking through them, like trying to figure out like, well, this is how you get your batting average. And then he comes up with a number and is like, no, that that's not it. And Rainbow can't talk and is polite and is just kind of like taking it. I think there are so many great moments in this film, but uh, having watched it a couple of times, it just really like tickled me. And I really appreciate Richard Pryor's acting in those moments also. And I think conceptually it's super funny and also fits in really nicely with what we've been talking about 
in terms of like the forgotten numbers and the forgotten people mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the league. And so it, it feels like a lot of the stuff that I love about this film and am interested in regarding this era and also entertainment is tied up nicely in a bow with this. That's a more well thought out answer than mine. Mine is just pretty emotional. (laughs) Um, My runner up is the moment when when Mabel King comes into the sauna because I was already so primed by the fact that they were in a sauna and I had the thought, oh man, all those male owners are in this sauna so that Mabel King's character can't come in and then she came in in a hat and I was so happy. But that's my runner-up. My favorite moment is the scene between James Earl Jones and Billy D. Williams in the hotel after Billy D. Williams has given the group his share because all the money was stolen oh, from Rainbow. Oh, that's a good scene. It's yeah. such a good, good scene. And, you know, he tells Leon that he did that, and Leon congratulates him for being a good socialist, basically. Those are not his words, you know, but he says something like, you've done a lot for the fraternity of ballplayers. And then Bingo reveals that he also gave away Leon's share. And James Earl Jones gives him this James Earl Jones glower. And then he smiles. And then they get up and he starts to dance. He says something about, like, I guess it doesn't cost anything to dance. That's not exactly what he says. That's a terrible paraphrase. And then they start dancing together, and my heart exploded. And it's very, it's, it's a very delightful. It's dance such scene. such a good scene. Um, did you have a least favorite moment? I think collectively the henchmen scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like oh, they get the guy that's close to the park when they're barnstorming the black teams, and and then stealing the money from Rainbow from the box, and it's like, how did you know that that money was in that box? That is. Actually, one of those moments of, like, not actually a very good storytelling. You're just supposed to know that, like, they're the bad guys and they're going to get at the vulnerable place, generally. And then the scene where they bust in on Richard Pryor is okay because it's, like, kind of funny. But at the same time, it's like, how did they know where to find him in that room with the prostitute? And... Why were they looking for him specifically? It just feels sort of like sloppy and shallow compared with the rest of the film. That's why I picked those. Yeah, I agree. Those scenes were really one of the main storytelling problems that I had with the film. I 100% agree, but I'm going to pick a different scene just to be interesting, although Uh it's sort of adjacent. When Charlie Snow, Richard Pryor's character, is in the hospital and Bingo comes to check on him, There's a scene with a nurse, and I think it's the worst acting in the whole movie. That nurse, it's it's like deplorably bad acting. He talked about his girlfriend. I think his name was Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It it was so bad that I was like, she must have been related to somebody. She looked like not an actor on a film set. Or like she was background and while they were looking at the script they were like oh we actually need to like here's something that we're gonna put in let's give this line to this person that we actually didn't vet for acting talent yeah yeah it seemed like she was not vetted for acting talent and the script was maybe a little wooden and it 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 showed yeah it showed is there a scene that you would have liked to see 
I would have loved to see, and again, I get why it's not there, but I, I wouldn't have minded to see a little more depth in the villain type characters. I just feel like the people on the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings were so interesting and like there was depth to them. And then to have them set up against this super one-dimensional set of villains run by like the the funeral king felt a little lopsided and i think it would have been a little more interesting to and again not knowing much about the ownership of these teams i wanted it it felt like there wasn't fair treatment to the villains like they could still be people and be the villains and i felt like they weren't and that's what i wanted to see totally yeah, I would obviously die if they had decided that they were going to have a female second baseman in this movie. Even if she weren't like a major character, even if she were just sort of minor, that would be incredible. But that would yeah. be like a whole other person. And obviously, I want to see a whole different version of this story that is not as much a comedy. But I love this movie exactly the way that it is. And into this movie exactly the way that it is, I would like to insert a scene in which Leon Carter is helping Esquire Joe with his power stroke or something like that. Hmm. Like, I love that Esquire Joe has been presented as this preternaturally talented young player, but I still feel like I would have loved to see him also gain something under specifically Leon's tutelage. And I feel like that moment at the end, oh my God, it's so good, where Leon is registering that... Esquire Joe has been signed to a white team. And then that he breaks out in a smile for him. It's so good and so heartbreaking because you know that he never had that opportunity. Yeah. So I feel like if that moment would have meant even more, if we would have seen that he was sort of passing on to Esquire Joe some of his wisdom. I think that that would track with the story that the movie is already telling where Esquire Joe first comes on the scene. There's like skepticism of him, but James Earl Jones definitely gives him respect right away when his skills become apparent. And when Bingo like approaches him after that first game and is like, hey, listen, we want you to come aboard. And since you're a rookie, we're going to give you a half share. And then he looks at James Earl Jones and James Earl Jones is like, do you not hear all that I was talking about with regards to Du Bois and Marx? Yeah. And like, he's like, well, but actually you were already playing for the Hustlers, so you get a full share. And James Earl Jones is like, yeah, that's right. Which is also why he's like the best catcher, because he's like the leader, the strategist on the team. So yeah, I I fully agree with that. But this seems really difficult to me, and so I'm very curious to hear what your answer is going to be. Who amongst all of these dreamboats is the dreamiest? There is no wrong answer to this question. And there, yeah, there are so many right answers. There are so many right answers to this question, and yet Leon Carter. For me personally, it's not even close. I agree. Yeah, I agree 100%. And similarly, to just allied two questions into one, James Earl Jones also gives my favorite performance of this movie. Same, 100%. And a lot of people give very good performances in this film. And I feel like one thing that I wanted to mention about this film that I didn't mention, so I'll say another favorite performance is all of the background actors going to the Negro League 
games. It's mm. really like I loved to see that. I love the involvement of the fans as depicted. And it's also just really great, actually, to see a lot of black people watching a lot of black people play. Those two guys drinking the Cokes and betting yes, at and that betting. very first game. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, but just it's really good. Like, you know, I think that for some of the tonal oddities of this film it's so enjoyable and it's actually just so great to see a film that's about black audiences enjoying the play of black players that you know it's hard to argue with the excellence of that thing existing i could not agree more did you also agree with favorite performance or did i yeah no no i'm i'm james earl jones all the way team carter team carter So that wraps us up for the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings. And because I am just going to be aching for my Leon Carter next week, we are going to be doing Field of Dreams next. Oh, that field. You know that field. You know the field we're talking about. If you build it, they will pod. (laughs) So please join us again next week as we dig into that classic. We dig into that field next week, guys. Yeah, we're going to be uprooting all that corn and digging into it. (laughs) And please follow, subscribe to our podcast. I am at Eric Gildy, G-I-L-D-E, on most of the social medias. And And I am at Ellen underscore Adair on Twitter and Ellen Adair G on Instagram. And you can also rate and review this podcast if you like it. If you don't like it, don't do it. Yeah, but in either case, we will be doing this again. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. So your negative reviews are not going to rain on our parade. All right, we're over. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Oh!